I don't need the reaction. I just need something super hot. But I'm pretty sure that those pursuing fusion will find that if you're at the temperature of the sun, there's nothing solid that can hold it. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show where we are absolutely positively obsessed with the power that comes from a mass of incandescent gas that is a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built at a helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Oh, ho, it's hot. The sun is not a place where we could live. But here on Earth, there be no light without the light it gives. That's right, people. We are talking about how we can bottle the sun and maximize its potential here on Earth. And thank you to They Might Be Giants for that song that I absolutely have loved since I first heard it way back in the 90s. Oh, my God, I'm old. So today we are talking about hot rocks, hot rock technology. It's slang for thermal batteries, and they are taking the long duration storage energy game to a completely different level. While most long duration storage offerings are targeting like eight hours of storage, uh, we might see up to a hundred hours of storage with some of these solutions, maybe even more than that. And this is important because as we integrate more renewables to the grid, we get more intermittency, right? Uh, the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. And so right now we use thousands of peaker plants powered by mostly natural gas uh, to meet these surges in demand and level out the intermittency. But that is not the solution we want if we want to get to a 100% renewables future. We need to store the energy that we are generating from the sun and the wind at a utility scale and save it for a long period of time and use it as we need to. So to do that, we have to completely rethink how we store energy. And I'm not talking about incremental improvements to storage technology that makes it slightly better. I'm saying we need a complete game changer. Like think moving from the horse and buggy to the automobile or vacuum tube televisions to flat screen TVs, that type of dramatic transition. And I think thermal batteries are what's going to get us there. But before we explore that away mission, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the CEO of Technica Communications and the founder of Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. And before I was in PR, I was an environmental science reporter for NPR and PBS. The common through line in my career has always been environmental stewardship and slowing climate change. Earthlings 2.0 is just the latest in my refusal to give up on this planet. And um, we focus on lifting those up who are working to increase the likelihood of a greener future instead of, frankly, a non-existent one. So our production team here at Earthlings 2.0 is on the warpath to fight climate change because we all share the same passion for our natural world and those living in it. So advocating for this mission, we encourage you to join our Patreon. Only $5 a month and you can have access to our exclusive content and other secret goodies. 
The first 20 Earthlings who become Patreon members will receive a shout out on the show, as well as our social media. So don't delay. Those 20 spots are filling up fast. And if Patreon isn't in the cards for you right now, we understand and we appreciate your support in other forms, including leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app. And on Earthlings 2.0, we are big believers that everyone can make a difference no matter where they are in the world. And maybe yours is to start by supporting this show and allowing us to keep doing what we love and endorsing others on the same path. Thermal batteries are storage systems engineered to convert renewable energy to heat or thermal energy, which is then stored until the power is needed. So this seemingly new kid on the block was actually invented almost 80 years ago by German scientists in World War II. Back then, thermal batteries were used as a power source for the V-2 rockets. Now, today, these batteries hold the promise to provide the storage the grid needs to make the most of renewable energy, because let's face it, flow batteries are slow movers, in my opinion, and you can only chain so many lithium-ion batteries together. And those solutions are expensive. And if we're going to have a solution that can answer the energy storage needs uh, that Bloomberg New Energy Finance predicts that we will need, uh, we're going to need something that is much more affordable. So Bloomberg NEF says that we will have a cumulative storage capacity of about 411 gigawatt hours by the end of 2023. That's 15 times the amount of storage that was online at the end of 2021. So we are going to need a lot of storage and we're going to need a different solution to get there. Our guest today says thermal batteries will get us there. His name is Ashagun Henry, and he's the founder and chief technology officer at Fourth Power. He's also an MIT professor and director of the Atomistic Stimulation and Energy Research Group there. But he first started exploring how to develop his thermal battery solution when he was a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Back in the 2010s, it wasn't as much about long duration storage as much as how to develop a solution that was cost effective and flexible. The real problem is just that the storage is too expensive, you know, simply put. And even today, we still don't have really an option that's commercially available. There are a number of things being developed, right? But in terms of like, what can utilities buy today? Uh, we don't right now have an option that's can be deployed anywhere that's cheaper than lithium ion. So lithium ion is basically it, right? There are other battery chemistries that are being developed. I think there are, you know, a bunch of them at various stages of development. I think there's some exciting prospects, but we just looked at it as how do we get low cost storage? How do we get the lowest cost storage? And when we do it, how do we make it flexible? Because the one thing we were clear on is like, we don't really know what the future grid is going to look like. When we can make projections, we can make predictions. We can do our best estimate and best guess. But one thing that we were clear or was the clear message we got from utilities and some of the workshops I attended, um, projects that I was involved in, was utilities were clear they needed flexibility. 
that when you start putting on intermittent renewables and when they tried to imagine what managing a grid with a whole bunch of effectively power plants that you can't control the output, it was a scary thought for them. And they, they are, were very clear that what they ultimately wanted is something that's going to help them balance the grid and have the flexibility to do whatever they needed to do to keep the grid stable. So, so that was kind of, I would say, the foundation of how we started. And so I think at that time, people were still bought into the idea that the, uh, the cost curve may come down for lithium ion. So maybe one day it'll get cost effective enough if you got enough large scale, high volume manufacturing. But, and so people fixated on this idea of duration, but I think it's, it's more complicated than that, or maybe the, the bigger issues really is cost. Well, it's all of these things, right? You can have something very inexpensive, but if it can only store an hour of power, that's not useful either. So it's like this Venn diagram that we've been trying to get to. And you have developed this thermal battery technology that can store between five, 10 hours of energy, maybe up to 100. Even, even beyond 100. Even beyond 100. See, so uh, tell us about your technology and, and how does it work? Yeah, so the technology um, is can be thought of as an outgrowth of concentrated solar power. So um, how it works is we take in electricity, we use that electricity that's agnostic, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Um, we specifically in our mission at Fourth Power are committed and interested in having that electricity come from renewables. But we use that electricity to basically run a light bulb, a giant heater. And our heater gets about as hot as a light bulb, which is about half the temperature of the sun. So it's glowing white hot. It's very bright. And that light that gets emitted by it is is heat. It's light um, and it's energy. And next to those giant light bulb elements, which maybe for perspective, let me let me give some sense of scale. So so most people are familiar with like the size of of a hundred watt light bulb. And so the little film filament inside the thing that's glowing is, you know, less than an inch. And in our case, it's more like a meter and weighs, weighs like a hundred pounds. So, and that's, that's like megawatt scale. And so we're talking about millions of Watts rather than hundreds of Watts or hundreds of millions of Watts. So, uh, all in all, um, once that light is emitted by our heating element, it transfers to a graphite piping network. So, the key material, the key element in our whole system that we rely on is carbon. And we do that because it's abundant, it's inexpensive, it's cheap. Um, and it has this really key characteristic that works really well for us, which is um, graphite is, is capable of staying solid, staying strong um, at extremely high temperatures, um, above 3000 degrees Celsius. And so uh, we exploit that. So we basically invented, or what I helped pioneer was this um, idea of making an entirely graphite plumbing system. So you can have pumps, valves, pipes, joints between them, um, T-joints, flow meters, all these basic things that you use in your household that are probably made out of PVC and copper and steel. We basically use a different material that's capable of going extremely high temperature, but it's the same basic elements. So the thing that we are flowing inside of the pipes is liquid metal. And the liquid metal serves a really, really key function. It's not what we're using to store the energy. 
it's just a transport fluid. It just moves energy from one location to another. And the reason that's really powerful is because it allows us to separate the system into different, call it maybe modules or different sections. And as it flows past the heaters and it um, gets heated up, that is it taking on the energy of the heater. So you're taking the electricity and you're converting it to now heat in the liquid metal. We call it sensible heat. And that heat then goes over to where it is we're storing the energy, which is now in very inexpensive carbon blocks. So we have a separate facility, so to speak, nearby. It's not far. It's you know a couple meters away, but we have a building basically that would be filled with carbon blocks. And these carbon blocks, this is actually what's storing the energy and the liquid metal flows in a piping network that is integrated in between the blocks. So you can think of the blocks like Legos. We stack them and we leave gaps in between them so the plumbing system can run in between the blocks. And as the liquid metal flows through all those pipes, those pipes are emitting light and it causes the blocks to heat up in turn. So gradually, as the blocks heat up, when the blocks, all the blocks, let's say, reach 2400 degrees Celsius, that's when the battery, the thermal battery is considered fully charged. And this large bank of blocks is insulated from the environment. So there is a very important thermal insulation that's keeping all that light from getting out. It's blocking it. So you can't, if you were to walk up to this thing, you wouldn't see anything bright. It's fully shielded. And so the insulation keeps the heat in. And then inside, and then that set of insulation and all of those blocks are all now in their own warehouse. And inside that warehouse, we have argon gas. So there's no air in there. It's argon. And argon is useful for us because argon is one of the elements all the way on the right-hand side of the periodic table. It doesn't interact with anything. doesn't form any chemical compounds. And, um, and so it also doesn't do anything with carbon. So our system can be inert. It can sit there essentially indefinitely without any degradation. And this is how we store the energy. And it can sit there for a month or more. Um, when you are later ready to uh, get the electricity back, we turn off the heater because you imagine your solar, your sunlight. Let's say it's let's say it's at night, so the sun is down. There's no solar. Now we are using this giant bank of carbon blocks like its own sun, so to speak. And now we use the liquid metal to pull the energy out of this sun. And we actually, instead of using what you would know, what you would normally do if you want to convert heat to electricity is you use a turbine. But one of the big innovations in our approach is actually to instead use uh, solar panels and the liquid metal goes and it pulls the energy out of these blocks and transfers it to the solar panels, which are now in a separate enclosure. And it's almost like they're little furnaces that are powered by liquid metal. And then there are these solar panels that are actively cooled. They've got water flowing behind them to keep them cold. And they convert the light coming off of this whole plumbing network. And that gives us back the electricity that goes back on the grid. And then the liquid metal circulates back to the blocks to get reheated. And so we just gradually pull the energy out of our miniature sun in order to power the grid. So it's basically like taking the sun, generating electricity on Earth, storing that energy in a miniature sun on earth in a box that nobody can see totally shielded and then because we've now trapped this energy in our own sun we now get to pull the electricity out when we want which can be at night or whenever the actual sun is not up um, you were talking about each of these blocks as a meter so how large would you consider uh, one of your installations 
Yeah, what we consider full scale is nominally about 100 megawatts, which for, for perspective would the average United States household uses about one kilowatt of electricity continuously on average. So 100 megawatts is 100,000 homes. So these are utility scale batteries. So imagine 100 megawatts, nominally if you imagine 10 hours of storage, so that's enough energy to basically get through the night. Um, and so at that at that scale, one of these installations would be roughly the size of like half a football field or a football field, somewhere in that range. That, that gives us a, a sense of scale. I just, I think it's so cool what you've, you've done here to um, basically bottle the sun and allow us to use that level of energy whenever we want. And uh, I understand that there's a couple other companies out there doing something similar, but you all have the Guinness Book of World Record for the highest temperature liquid metal. 1,200 degrees Celsius was was what you uh, were able to achieve. Yeah, the, the Guinness World Record is kind of interesting. So they they wrote the record actually at 1200C. The We actually hit 1400C in that first test. Um, we actually could have gone hotter. Since then, we have gone hotter. Um, we actually forgot to fill out the, have witnesses and fill out the paperwork for a revised um, <laughs> a record above 2000C. Uh, so now that we've got a company, we're going to, we're going to make sure we do that and check that box and set the world record probably up at 2400C. And I, I don't imagine that anybody will touch that record for a long time. With the work that you're doing, how do you see your system or solution differentiated from, from others that might be out there? Yeah, I would say the, the big differentiator for us is cost and, and how we get to low cost is, um, is the, in terms of differentiation from others is, is power density. So there are kind of two components to how you make an energy system cheap. They're, they're kind of two somewhat independent, but maybe related issues. The first is to try to use cheap materials, to try to use, make it out of something cheap. You know, you essentially you have two main costs when you build something. You have to pay for the stuff it's made out of, and you got to pay to put it together like the construction or assembly or whatever cost it takes to actually manufacture and make it. So the other thing you can do to lower the cost of something is to increase the denominator, like to make the amount of energy it's storing bigger or the amount of power it's delivering bigger. And in our case, we uh, essentially try to do both. Um, so number one, we try to use very low cost materials. We make almost our entire system out of carbon. So carbon or graphite, the graphite that we are using for the plumbing system is only like two and a half times more expensive than aluminum. It's actually a very low cost material, despite the fact that it gives us this real, this access to this really huge temperature range. So that's kind of our starting point is make the system out of something that's cheap. Turns out that it's cheap, it's strong, and it does all the things that we want. Great. The second aspect of our system, and this is, I think, the bigger differentiator, as you mentioned, with respect to everything else that's out there, um, and to my knowledge, everything that's being developed, is we try to make the denominator bigger so that the ratio of cost to the denominator is smaller. So cost per unit power for us is smaller. And the way we do that, and this is where the name of the company kind of comes from, Fourth Power, is by pushing temperature up as high as possible. Now, what is the significance of the Fourth Power? <laughs> um, the reason that's significant is because most people are used to thinking linearly, <laughs> meaning 
let's actually use the example you, you just pointed out. The Guinness World Record was at 1200C. We're actually operating at like uh, 2400C. So that's effectively, let's call it like twice, twice the temperature, right? So what that means is you would, you would think 1200C, it, it looks, something looks basically white. There's a bunch of white light coming out of it. If you double the temperature, the immediate thing people would think is, oh, well, you get twice as much light. Not true. You get 16 times more light, right? Because it's wow. two to the fourth power. So we, we exploit this. We exploit exactly this. The fact that as you go up in temperature, the amount of light that's coming out of something is increasing very, very rapidly. And the hotter you can go, the more light you can get. Now, the more light you can get, great. This is now increasing the amount of power that you are able to, let's call it generate or transfer or convert for the same size equipment. So for the same, let's say one pipe as you heat it up, I can get X amount of power out of it. Or if I double the temperature, I get 16 times more power out of the same pipe, same pipe. I didn't change the pipe. So that is our, the, the kind of crux of our approach is we have paid a cost to put our system in an inert environment. We have paid a cost to make our entire thing out of graphite to begin with. We have paid a cost to use liquid metal and, and route 10 in different places. So since we've already paid all that cost, we might as well turn temperature up as high as possible and exploit temperature to the fourth power. So what makes us different? Number one, our temperature range is higher than anyone I've ever heard of. And what that buys us is the ability to transfer heat more effectively, more efficiently with less equipment. And this has two, two benefits. Number one, your materials cost is lower because you're using less material. But the second key benefit is there's less stuff to assemble, less stuff to put together for the same amount of power. So our system is smaller, more compact, and puts out more power. Or let's say for the same amount of power, it's smaller and more compact. And so that lowers your construction costs and your materials costs. And, and again, take off the table that just because it's hot and we're using graphite, it's not, that doesn't mean it's, it's more expensive. It's actually, it's actually cheaper than nickel alloys or a bunch of the other things that other companies would have to use as they go hot. So that is our, um, the crux of, I think what makes us different is, is we, we, we push to the highest possible temperatures and we have the highest power density. Because you think about these other storage solutions, flow batteries, lithium-ion, um, supercapacitor batteries that are coming online, solid-state batteries, all these things, and they, they work fine for certain applications. Uh, but what you're all doing is, like you said, sort of sun in a box. It's almost like biomimicry in a way. Like the sun is this great energy source. And it's about, and the way our world works is really more about heat transfer and, and, and the storage of heat, you know, the side of a building is going to heat up during the day if the sun is shining on it. Right. And then that heat is released later on, yada, yada. And I, I really, I love how you're thinking about energy storage in a way that kind of mimics what's out there already in nature. Yeah, actually, you know, there's an interesting parallel there because it's 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 very much like um, the same argument that's used for why fusion is so exciting. It's like you got a nuclear reactor out there, 93 million miles away. Let's let's make one on Earth. 
right? And they're doing all this gymnastics to recreate a sun on Earth because they're trying to recreate the actual reaction that's happened, the nuclear reaction that's happening in the sun. They want that to happen on Earth. And I'm like, I don't need the reaction. I just need something super hot, right? And so I'm doing it the more practical way, which is I don't need, I don't need any <laughs> superconducting magnets to contain the blood. I don't need any of that. I just need something hot. <laughs> and yes, I'm paying, I'm paying a penalty. I'm going, I'm half the temperature of the sun instead of the full temperature of the sun. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure that those pursuing fu fusion will find that if you're at the temperature of the sun, there's nothing solid that can hold it. So <laughs> you will end up downgrading ultimately to a lower temperature and you want to operate at the highest possible temperatures you can practically do with solid materials to hold it. And that is essentially what we did. We just skipped it and said, let's just get something hot and make our own sun on Earth. It's a hot, solid sun. And then we'll get the electricity out when we want. So it's the same logic as fusion. We got to get we got to get just as much excitement about it like fusion. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, hopefully this uh, this podcast will, will help you with that. What's your timeline right now for commercialization? Where are you in your uh, technology development? So the first, or maybe say next step, or let me give one piece of history. This is, this is something we've been developing in my lab for the last 10 years or so, um, both at Georgia Tech and at MIT. So we have done a lot of work with the hardware. We trust it. We understand it. Um, I don't think there's any scientific questions left. We've taken care of all that. We've proven out all the components. We've put systems together. We know it all works when you put it together. What we're looking to do now is actually scale it up to full-scale dimensions. So we're actually trying to build each of the components that will be in the system at their full-scale dimensions and build a fully integrated functioning battery at the one megawatt hour, 100 kilowatt scale. Um, and that's happening over the next two years. When that is done, what we will have accomplished is we will have demonstrated all the hardware that you would need in order to build a gigawatt hour scale plant. And what we plan to do after that is roughly every 12 months install a system that's essentially an order of magnitude bigger in energy and power, but we are always using the same equipment from this first installation. It's the, you know, maybe, maybe it'll have small tweaks in terms of improvements that we're making, but we don't need to like go back and requalify it and say, you know, cause we already have a version that would work. And so we can always make bigger ones. And the way we make bigger ones is we're not making anything bigger. We're just putting more of the modules of the things we already developed. So we will demonstrate a pump that can pump at a thousand gallons per minute. That 1000 gallon per minute pump. If you look at the way we have our TPV system um, arranged, one pump would be responsible for the equivalent of like 25 megawatts of power output. So that means I only need four pumps to do a hundred megawatt plant, right? I don't need thousands of pumps. I need four pumps. So our first big pump will take us already an order of magnitude or two higher in power. So we only still need one pump. As we gradually scale up the amount of energy storage we need, like we, we bundle a group of roughly eight blocks. One block is roughly 125 kilowatt hours of electricity storage. So eight blocks is basically a megawatt hour. So as we gradually scale up to a gigawatt hour, that'll be 8,000 blocks. And so we're, we're not changing the size of the blocks. We're not changing what material we're using. We're not changing lots of things. We're just, we're just putting more of the same thing we already built. And so the, the goal of that is to reduce risk associated with supply chain, associated with 
um, the technology operating, its durability, reliability. We're trying to take all that off the table and just say, we're doing the same thing we already did. We're just putting more of it and building bigger systems. And so that is expected to happen. So, you know, you take two years plus another um, essentially three more steps, another three years after that. So roughly 2028, 2029 timeframe is where we expect to get to the full scale one gigawatt hour. And after that, you know, now it's rinse and repeat. So that one gigawatt hour scale installation is something we expect to resonate pretty strongly with utilities around the world. And we'd want to just perfect that installation where we do as many of those as possible. And so after that, it's rinse and repeat and go as fast as possible with getting this deployed everywhere in the world. Which isn't very far away, right? It's only about four years from now. What do you see in the next uh, couple decades in terms of, of long duration energy storage? How do you how do you see the thermal battery fitting in with other solutions that are out there and also scaling? Like, what's your future prediction? Yeah, I, I have, I think, a somewhat maybe unpopular or um, different opinion about this than, than most people do. Um, we like contrarian opinions, so bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think there's a lot of great wisdom that has come from software, Silicon Valley-based startups, and the idea of diversity in the marketplace. And I think that a lot of those ideas or rules of thumb may not translate to this problem. And for, for a couple of reasons, uh, most importantly, I think the time scale, the time scale to deployment for an energy technology at the, you know, hundreds of megawatt scale is so, is so long. It's, it's, it's effectively call it an order of magnitude longer, you know, whereas in a software company, so much can happen in, in 12 months in one year. Whereas for energy technology, it's like 10 years. For that reason, I think the idea of like first mover advantage is not the same. You know, you could be a first mover in this industry. And yeah, maybe over the course of your first 10 years, you get like four or five or maybe let's say even 10 installations in the ground. And you can say, yeah, we're 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 ahead of everybody. But that's 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 uh, drops in a bucket compared to the hundreds of thousands of installations that will will be required over the coming decades to truly decarbonize the entire world. So the first mover advantage idea doesn't really hold, in my opinion, not not in the same way. The the second thing I would say in terms of energy storage and and the landscape is I'm not yet sold that there will be a great diversity of technologies that are being deployed. And what makes me think this is because you don't really see that in the power industry now. There's like one solution. The turbine, the turbine has a almost, almost entire monopoly on how power is generated around the entire world. Now, there are many companies that make turbines, but it's the same technology. I do not doubt that additional players will come to the table offering almost the same technology or very small variants of it. But I'm not yet sold that there's going to be this like ginormous suite of like 10 different technologies, energy storage technologies. And now it's probably one or two. So I think what we are going to see over the next decade is a huge downselect. You know, let's find out who the winners are and find out. I mean, another another great example is uh, is 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 renewable energy. So you've got so many different ways of getting electricity kind of semi. Let's call it I'm going to on a loop geothermal and we got geothermal, you got solar PV, you've got CSP, 
you've got CPV, you've got wind, you got so many different flavors of wind. You've got ocean, you got all these different things. And you know who won? PV and wind. That's it. Now, people are still doing lots of other things. This is not to say that it's totally off, but what, what are we people planning on? What Who dropped their cost fast enough and just won? The, the game is pretty much over. I mean, I don't think you're going to see a dramatic shift in the PV that's getting deployed. Silicon won. Silicon won. The, the polymer solar cells and all the other ideas, they, they, they didn't win. Silicon has gotten to scale and it's, it's game over. So I think it'll be a similar thing over the next decade for energy storage. Some winners are going to emerge and the cost is going to keep coming down. And those winners will, will stake the claim as the, as the champion. And that technology is what will be around. I really appreciate your perspective. When you said you teach the, uh, thermal dynamics, I couldn't help but hear Homer Simpson in the back of my mind yelling at Lisa, like, Lisa, in this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> I, I, I can guarantee with 100% certainty that everyone in every household on earth and in everywhere in the universe obeys the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> Earthlings, there you have it. Suns in a box coming to a community near you to manage the utility grid for the 100% renewable future that we're all looking forward to. I appreciate Ashe's contrarian opinion on um, how there might not be a diversity of technologies in the future for certain solutions, but instead, like a few of them are going to win out. Um, and we see this in other industries, right? Like look at the automobile. Um, 10 years after it was invented in the, uh, the 1890s, uh, there were 485 companies uh, in the U.S. alone building a wide variety of automobiles. And there was very little standardization among them. I learned that from Top Gear many years ago. Uh, but Henry Ford came along and he had his Model N and then his Model T and it was game over, right? By 1929, the number of automakers were down to 44 uh, with the majority of the production coming from the big three, Ford, GM, Chrysler. That was it. And that took, what, like 30, 40 years. Done. I wonder if Ashe's onto something here and we might see something very similar in the renewable energy space. I, for one, am very excited to watch Fourth Power uh, rise up to this challenge and uh, become the sun in a box solution that we all look back on, you know, 100 years from now and say, oh, well, it was just inevitable, right? Our faith in humanity is restored this week by two young men from India who are using their software and programming skills to track, prevent, and punish wildlife crime with a suite of sophisticated apps and tools. Alan Shaji and Sobin Matthew are the co-founders of Leopard Tech Labs, and it's an IT company that has pioneered the creation of a variety of programs um, that are employed by the Karala Forest Department. Their Wild Watch program uses machine learning to anticipate potential human-wildlife conflicts before they happen. So this system leverages insights from seasonal animal movements and historical instances of violence against wildlife, also crop-related data such as 
proximity to nature reserves and the timing of human activities along the boundaries of those cropped areas. And by analyzing all of these factors, WildWatch predicts and identifies areas where conflicts are likely to occur before they actually do. Uh, Beyond the Carla Forest, three tiger reserves are using their solution, and Brazil commissioned an app specifically to help mitigate human-snake conflicts. I really like this idea of using big data and machine learning to stop wildlife trafficking because it is the third most profitable illegal trade globally behind drugs and human trafficking. And uh, it's people like Alan and Sobin who remind us that each earthling has the ability and the potential to make a lasting difference in their little corner of this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home. Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.